This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back to the final four. It's not on the schedule. He is Rod. I am Cameron. And today we are back to talk about Michigan State coming in at number three on our Big Ten preseason breakdown. Uh, Michigan State finishes up 22-9 and last year, 14-6 and in the league, um, which if you're just to look at those numbers, you wouldn't really think maybe that that was one of the better Michigan State years, but um, they still get a, a share of the Big Ten championship, and more importantly, Rod, as they were entering the Big Ten tournament, they were at their peak. You know, they were right well, where they needed to be um, playing the best basketball. Yeah, we said it in reference to a few teams that they kind of ended up taking roundabout ways to getting to where they people figured they were going to be mm-hmm. in the beginning anyway, but it was an uneven path. That definitely would describe Michigan State. I agree with you. If you look... If you go back to March and you look at the talk around Michigan State heading into postseason play, uh, I think the perception was they were right there yeah. and were seen as a team that was very likely, you know, you can't ever say very likely, but was going to have every chance, every had every capability of reaching a second consecutive Final Four, maybe winning the title. There wasn't, in my mind, there was not a clear cut, well, this is a heavyweight team that nobody's going to touch nationally. You know, mm-hmm. there were a bunch of very good teams, but I think MSU would have been right there. They were certainly perceived as the best team in the Big Ten because, you know, we talked about Maryland kind of backed their way into a share. They were way out in front and then quasi collapsed late in the year. Well, Michigan State, won their last five games. I'm sorry, their last six games, I believe, and five of them were against ranked opponents. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, and and a number of those were on the road. Uh, so MSU was playing its best basketball when it had to. You know, the beginning of the season, you had the pressure being preseason number one. Then very quickly, you had the incident with Cassius Winston's brother, which didn't affect just him. I think it affected the whole team. Yeah. And that took a while to get past. And there were highlights along the way. The road win at Seton Hall, looking back at it at season's end, looked every bit as big as we thought it was at the time because Seton Hall had a great year. Mm. Um, so it's not that MSU didn't have good moments, but they really didn't hit their stride until those final, say, you know, three weeks of the season. And and then I think we saw the team that we expected them to be all along and you know, we'll never know, but I think they had every chance of reaching another Final Four. They they would have been a team thought of as right in the mix at the top 
of the top group of teams given a legitimate chance to win the whole thing. And what they did manage to accomplish was a third straight Big Ten title, mm-hmm. which is a big deal. Um, MSU has done better than that once in its history. The four straight titles they won from the 97-98 season through the 2000-2001 season, which happened to correspond with Charlie Bell and Andre Hudson's entire careers. Mm-hmm. It's never played a season where they didn't win a Big Ten title. Uh, but that's it. Other than that, MSU has never won three straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a hell of an accomplishment. And, you know, the, the guys that we'll talk about off the top were an instrumental part of all three of those. Mm. Uh, and before we get into that, Rod, um, after a, a ton of shuffling with the schedule, um, some cancellations of tournaments, it looks like we, we finally have a, a fairly good handle on MSU's schedule this year. Um, yeah. What are, you, finally, what are you looking at here? Yeah, we're, we're recording this on, what is the date, Monday the 16th. 17th, 16th? Yeah, 16th. What are we at here? 16th. <laughs> um, and after a lot of shuffling around and back and forth, it appears that what they're going to do is play a 20-game Big Ten schedule. That portion of it has not been announced yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been like the last three weeks running. We've been hearing this week, this week, this week, and it hasn't happened. But we seem to have the non-conference games identified. So it's three te- three games against ACC opponents. They're going to play Duke at Duke. They'll play Virginia at Virginia. And the home or away thing obviously does not matter as much as it normally does. Yeah. With no fans allowed. So that's not such a big deal other than the fact that you're traveling to them, but it's, it's just not the same kind of thing it is normally. And then they've got Notre Dame coming to the breast. So three ACC teams and then four teams against Michigan schools. They're playing Eastern, Western, Oakland, and U of D. Uh, So everybody except Central and State. And that jumped around because there were points I was hearing they were going to play Central and not Western. And, you know, it's been, it's been all over the map. The interesting thing is UD. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, MSU has not played U of D since maybe 1996, I think, oh, wow. is those second year. Um, and I might be missing one. I may be, I may be, um, there, there might have been a game that in there that was, um, you know, a made-for-TV thing or something that a matchup was to try. I might be forgetting, but I think that's right. And the reason it ended was it was for a very good reason. It's you know, Michigan State historically had played U of D a lot, and Perry Watson, the former Michigan assistant, former Detroit Southwestern coach, got that job. And um, from what I understand, and and it's I don't think it's a big secret. Uh, Izzo didn't have a lot of respect for the way he did business. Hmm. And so Michigan State made the decision at a certain point to stop playing them. And it also helped that Oakland was rising. Oakland was a, becoming a Division One program. And so there was another school in state that Izzo had a better relationship with that Michigan State yeah. historically had tie-ins with that could substitute for that. Um, but they haven't played UD in forever. What's different now is Mike Davis, the former Indiana coach, is there. And I, as I understand it, he and Izzo are on very good terms. In fact, 
Uh, MSU, I know, played his Texas Southern team once uh, while he was coaching there. If you remember, Texas Southern beat MSU in that game. Yeah. In, in the season that MSU ended up going to the Final Four, but the non-conference was – that that game in particular was one that had people taking dives off 10-story buildings. <laughs> um, but But so I think the fact that there's that relationship there makes it easier to play UAD. The other thing is – and we've known this for a while. It's no surprise to me that the other games uh, are again, you know, other than the big time games are against in-state schools. You know, we've talked about it. I figured that it was likely it was going to be schools, if not all in Michigan, then definitely in this region. So maybe you might play, you know, a Bowling Green or, um, you know, uh, one of the schools in northern Indiana, Ball State, something like that. It was going to be schools within driving distance. And so the fact that it's all four in-state schools, you know, everybody except for Central, um, you know, I think that's uh, I think that's neat yeah. for this year, you know. Yeah. Um, and it keeps them within protocols, Michigan protocols, so they're all absolutely. on the same page. Absolutely, and I think that's part of the reason what's driving this. Um, it's, you don't have, you know, both schools don't have to go very far to play these games. As you say, they, even though they're not in the same conference, at least they can get a feel they're, they're coming from the same state. So they're at least working within this under the same parameters in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's just not a motivation, I think, to go much further afield than you have to. The other interesting thing that's come out today, and we'll see if it holds up, but strong indications at the NCAA tournament is going to be played entirely in Indianapolis. Now, this is going to be – this stuff we're talking about is going to be old news by the time people hear this, but mm-hmm. um, this is new to us as we're talking about it. So it seems likely to me, although they haven't filled in any details, so what that's going to mean is they're going to need to use a number of gyms in Indianapolis. I mean, they could play games at Lucas Oil, um, but will they? Because that's a big facility. Do you need to do that? For this tournament with no fans, we can assume no mm-hmm. fans. Um, I don't know. Uh, they obviously have the Pacers uh, arena, and then there are colleges. You've got Butler, which would be great. Hinkle Field House would be a great setting. Um, and there's a couple smaller schools, IUPUI and uh, I think University of Indianapolis. Uh, but the other thing to keep in mind is, and I've seen this firsthand, the area around Indianapolis has a number of high school gyms and you shouldn't picture your local high school gym Mm -hmm. in Indiana in general. There are gyms, the high schools playing that make many college arenas pale by comparison Mm -hmm. in terms of how they look. and, And even in terms of size, I mean, there are, there are high school gyms in Indiana that seat, you know, around 10,000 people. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, Jeez. they're basically they're basically not much different than Jenison was in uh-huh. terms of capacity, you know, and they're much bigger than like the rack, for example, if you want to use a Big Ten uh, school as a comparison point um, comparable to what Northwestern plays in, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. So I would think it's possible that a handful of those might be used. They utilize those some of those gyms as satellite areas for EYBL. You know, the EYBL event is is scheduled, it's headquartered, centered around the Pacers practice facility. 
mm-hmm. which would also be an option, I suppose, except that would lack some of the field because there are no stands. There's nothing in that except courts. It's a great facility, but I don't know that they would want to use that. But because they have so many games at the different age levels in EYBL, they have to farm out the lower levels to some satellite areas and, and they utilize local high school gyms. And I've been in high schools there that have multiple gyms. So they have the main one with all the stands and then they have courts, which are like, um, you know, practice facilities almost. Uh-huh. They're just a court with no, you know, with no stands really to speak of except for a handful of metal bleachers about four or five rows up, but that at either end, but that's it. So that's how big these operations are. So it'll be interesting to me if that does come to pass and the whole thing is held in Indianapolis, how that looks. And I think it could be a really unique kind of feel. I'm not saying I'd want to do it every year, Mm -hmm. but in a year where you can't have fans anyway, why not? Sure. Yeah. Um, So do we expect all the um, in-state schools to play at Breslin? Yeah, I believe that's what's anticipated. Okay. Um, I can't, I can't see why they wouldn't do it because that should still create a buy game situation where they can get paid, mm-hmm. which is part of what, you know, obviously under these circumstances, it, finances are tight for everybody. Um, I'm not sure what those contracts look like. I imagine that's been part of the hassle and the hassles have been tremendous in terms of scheduling. But I've got to believe that's part of it. Now, I will say what's interesting to me, again, we're speaking on Monday night, the 16th, right? Mm -hmm. Yesterday, the governor, through her health department, announced a new set of restrictions. And those restrictions essentially eliminated high school sports. They did explicitly carve out the Big Ten and professional ranks But I was unclear until today, and I'm making an assumption in this, as to how it would work with the MAC schools, with the Horizon League schools, you know, these other Division I schools. And I'm still not clear how it works with Division II or Division III. Um, So we will will see. But I have to assume since the schedules were announced that, you know, Oakland and UAD and the MAC schools are going to be okay um, to play, at least in men's basketball. Um, but I can't say that definitively because, again, the way that order was written, it was kind of tough to read in exactly where that line is going to be, you know. Yeah. Um, one thing that's been made crystal clear is, you know, what's been going on to date is you weren't selling tickets to games like Big Ten football, for example, or the NFL. Family members were allowed. That's done. There will literally be no one in the stands other than, I believe, media personnel working the games like camera operators, officials, coaches, staff, associated staffs, and the players, and that's it. Wow. <laughs> so that's for the first – that's for – yeah, you're, and you're not – I mean, I don't think I'm giving anything away. You're not a resident of the state of Michigan anymore, mm. so – you might be hearing this for the first time uh, yourself, but <laughs> yeah. that is that is my understanding as to how this is going to work going forward. They've issued a three-week order, but I, man, I I tend to think that absent the courts getting involved, which you can't rule out, 
um, I tend to think that this is going to last well into next year in terms of the the application of those rules, meaning nobody in the stands. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that's where it seems to sit as of today. Okay. Well, um, so MSU ends up uh, number seven in Ken Palm and the net. Um, yeah, they were very... they were on track. They were on track to be a two seed or a three seed. I, I think being a one was, as I recall, was probably asking for a little bit too much, mm-hmm. just the way things were laid out nationally. But if they if they at least reach the Big Ten final, I think a two was definitely in play, and a worst case scenario probably would have been a three. Yeah. Uh, and they finished 10th on offense, 13th on defense, so really balanced uh, again. Um, yeah. You know, they were a, a good shooting team by MSU standards, really good in terms of minimizing turnovers. I mean, we're used to MSU teams that in turnover percentage can be in the high hundreds, maybe even sometimes sub 200. And this group was what? They finished like 109, 106, something like that. I'm not looking at it. Um, but relatively okay. So they even minimized that. They were not an elite MSU team in terms of offensive rebounding, but were solid. Uh, so they, they, they just weren't bad. The only thing they were bad in is something that MSU teams usually rate pretty low in, and that's getting to the free throw line, the frequency with which they do that. Um, you know, free throw attempts, relative field goal attempts, relatively low. But that's usually how his teams work because his teams have never been ones that emphasize a lot of guys just, you know, fullback dives to the rim, the kind of stuff that especially in recent years tends to draw fouls. They, they, that's never been a big part of MSU's attack. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned defense. They were elite in terms of the way they limited opponents' success shooting the ball. I mean, elite. Where they let down a little bit was, by MSU standards, it was a bad defensive rebounding team. They were in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just not MSU standard. Um, I put a lot of that, as we talked about regularly throughout the season, I put a lot of that on the wing group. I think X did his job, and I think the other big men largely did their job in that way. But in, in the modern game, when you've got people taking a lot of deep jump shots against you, if your wings aren't really holding it down and and getting your share of long rebounds, you can struggle. And it felt to me like MSU's wing group did not rebound the way they needed to, not consistently. Mm-hmm. And so that that's something that I think coming into this season you've really got to shore up. Okay, uh, so players that they lost, um, you know, it starts with Cassius Winston. Um, he finishes with eighteen point six points a game, forty five from the floor, forty three from three, eighty five from the line, uh, and five point nine assists per game. Another outstanding year uh, for him. Yeah, I mean what. <laughs> What more can you say? I mean, the, the emotional turmoil that he went through last season and, and for him to only miss one game, to have the season he did, considering all of that, 
just really amazing and a testament to his mental toughness uh, and and of course his talent too. Let's not forget that. Yeah, I mean it wasn't it wasn't a perfect year. I think he shot the ball extremely well. You look at those shooting numbers, and he really delivered as a shooter. What was he forty three percent from three? I mean, yeah. uh, he doesn't get enough credit for being not just a good shooter, an elite shooter historically, which is something when he came out of UAD Jesuit, I never would have predicted. I figured he would be a good shooter. He would get himself to the point that he was a high 30s, maybe even, you know, hugging 40%. But to me, what made him elite and a special player potentially was his ability to pass. And he didn't disappoint on that. He graduated as the all-time assist leader in Big Ten history. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't see him becoming the kind of shooter he did. When you look at his stats, he rates with anybody you want to talk about. You know, in, in my mind, when I think of the elite shooters at MSU, I, and I'm not old enough to have seen guys like Mike Robinson or Terry Furlow, so I just miss those guys, so I can't really speak to that. But for me, my list starts with Skiles. Um, then you get to Sean Respert. Kirk, Kirk Manns before that really was an elite shooter, I guess. Sean Respert uh, in the Izzo era. You probably think about guys like Chris Hill, mm-hmm. um, you know, but uh, Cassius's numbers stack up with anybody, anybody. I mean, he shot 50% essentially from three as a sophomore. Uh-huh. Yeah. Nobody does that, <laughs> you know? And, and, and the, yeah, timing of, the timing of his threes, oh, yeah. you know, this isn't like he's Hill. racking these up in the first half. It's like when the game's on the line. Big moments, yes. Yeah, he was he was the ultimate. I don't know if I've ever seen a guy that at MSU at least that I felt was was more of a ride a wave kind of shooter, so to speak. That you could just feel it. You could physically feel it with the momentum of a game starting to shift, and that oh boy, we're coming on a, a two minute stretch where Cash might bust three triples on somebody, mm-hmm. and he would do it. And it would take a game from competitive to out of whack or bring MSU back from a deficit, whatever the situation was. But at, I agree with you. At inflection points, he was ultra dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about the assists. He graduates as the all-time leader in the conference in that in that category. Um, he had a little bit of a down year. Because let's keep in mind, as a freshman, while he was splitting time with Tom Tom Nairn, he was one assist total away from winning the league assist crown as a freshman. He was behind Bryant McIntosh. One total assist, not one per game. One assist. Mm-hmm. He then won it pretty easily as a sophomore and a junior. Last year, it wasn't bad, but he just didn't have, and that's for a variety of reasons, um, but he didn't have quite the years of playmaker that we become accustomed to he was just under the two to one assist to turnover ratio so that was an issue at times i think a lot of it had to do with him fighting through uh you know his his emotional situation Mm -hmm. psychological circumstances um but but still obviously the catalyst behind everything michigan state did so he's going to go down as one of the all-time greats uh you know again strictly my opinion to me, obviously, you know, Magic is on his own 
pedestal, his own, his own, uh, his own platform and nobody touches him. But after that, it now gets really interesting because I think for me, the next two guys, and you can make arguments for maybe a couple of other guys as well, but for me, the argument for who was number two had always been between Skiles and Cleves. Uh-huh. Cleves had the championship, of course. He had um, multiple Big Ten Player of the Year awards uh, and I think was a guy at a national level for more years earlier in his career. Skiles has had the best individual season I've ever witnessed <laughs> by an MSU player. His senior year better than magic just in terms of what he did in one season Mm -hmm. um unbelievable and and was pretty good before that but went to another level as a senior and took a team that really didn't have a whole hell of a lot they finished third place in a very deep big 10 reached the sweet 16 were screwed out of a win by a clock in kansas city against kansas um but to me those two guys that was where the debate was I think now you put Cassius into that discussion. I think he did enough. As a scorer, as the best assist guy in the history of the program, as a winner, three straight Big Ten titles he was part of. A fine, he got to a Final Four, might have reached a second one, we'll never know. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's hard to argue with that. So I think he gets into that mix. If somebody wants to say Cleves still wins it because he's got the national title, I'm not going to argue. He's one of my all-time favorites. I can't, I can't argue against that. If somebody wants to say it should be Skiles because as a senior, he was unreal. I can't argue with that either. I saw it, mm-hmm. but you might be able to make an argument that Cassius was more consistent than either mm-hmm. over four years. I don't know. Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, he's made. I think I, I would tend to put him just behind Cleves. Um, there's just something to be said about winning a national championship. There is, and, <laughs> you know, and you can't and you can't argue with the fact that that Mo Cleves was not just a great player, but he was a leader with a capital L. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of MSU fans, in part because of the nature of the state, and in part because of the the principles that Izzo has infused his program with kind of gravitate toward that visible leader type, you know, magic was God help us. He was that, you know, Skiles was that too, by the way, Cleves was all that Draymond green. Mm. I think Denzel kind of got some of that in him late in his career. You know, we've had these guys who have been those types and, and I think cash in his way was a leader, but he wasn't the same kind of personality that Cleves was. Cleves was loud and and in it and visibly demonstrative at all times, and that just wasn't cash. So, you know, if, if and again, like you say, it's hard to argue with the championship. And when you're the leader of a champion, it's hard to argue with it. Yeah, and we'll never know. If he if Cash just goes out and wins a national championship last right. year, I think he, point, he takes the lead. It, exactly. I, At that point, if he had gotten the title, I don't think I'd have hesitation putting him to because we'll never know that the answer to that. And you can't assume it. As good as yeah. MSU was, you can't assume it would have happened. Um, maybe that's the difference. But, but the fact that he's in the conversation 
mm-hmm. is amazing. You know, and it's testament how great he was because look at these guys we're talking, and we're not even talking about, by the way, the guys we're not even putting in that conversation, Greg Kelser. Yeah. Who trust me, if you're not old, if you're listening to this and you weren't old enough to see him, Greg Kelser is an all time great. Yeah. Capital A. That was my uh, mom's favorite Steve, player. <laughs> Greg Steve Kelser. Smith. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable career. Dream Team Two. All American. Uh, one of the greatest who's ever played at MSU, Sean Respert, ditto on all those fronts. Uh, Draymond Cream, Denzel Valentine, Kalen Lucas, Morris Peterson, the Vincent brothers. I mean, I can go on and on and on. You can go, you can go 20 deep with guys at Michigan State who would be all time greats at 95% of the other schools in the country. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know? who would be top five guys. So the fact that we're putting Cassius in this upper, upper, upper tier, best of the best group, that's testament mm-hmm. to what he was, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Xavier Tillman. He leaves one year early um, for the NBA draft, and you know he finishes with 13.7 points a game, 10.3 rebounds, 55 from the floor, 26 from three, and 67 from the line. Um, but just about as consistent as you could possibly be. Never took a night off. Um, I think he probably made the right decision going pro. Um, yeah. but you never know what his legacy would have been had he stayed one more, but what's yeah. your overall opinion of X? I, I think he made the right call. Look, he, he has two children. I think that you can make an argument that it's hard to imagine X staying another year and getting himself into a position where he gets drafted a lot higher. Yeah. Right now, yeah. we're, we're as we're recording this, we're a couple days out from the draft, finally. And, and it looks to me, from what I'm seeing, like there's at least reason to think he might sneak into the very bottom end of the first round. Now, whether that happens or not, we'll see. But uh, that that's kind of the feel I'm getting. There seems to be some talk around Boston at 30, you know. So whether he sneaks into the first round or he's an upper half of the second round guy, I think it's hard to make a cogent argument that by staying, he had a lot of room to move up dramatically from there. I don't yeah. think you were going to see him become a lottery pick. And, and the reason for that is there are limitations. I think he's going to be a 10-year pro minimum, mm-hmm. and barring injury. you know, Assuming health, I think he's going to be a long-term pro. I think he's going to be a guy who's not just a pro, but firmly in rotations. That's my guess. You know, I'm no scout, but that, that's my assumption. Um. But I don't know that he's ever going to be a guy that, unless he just forces you to think it, he's never going to be a guy that's going to wow NBA people and say, gee, this is a guy who could be a cornerstone of my franchise for a decade, you know? Like Draymond Green wasn't. Draymond Green had to prove that Mm -hmm. to people. And if Draymond Green had stayed two more years at Michigan State, I don't think it would have made a difference because he still would have been the same height. Um, He still would have been the same body. Uh, his skill set might have improved some, but it wouldn't have been markedly different. He wasn't ever going to become a world-class leaper. You know, these are all the same things that kind of hold X back. You know, he's not a freak. 
athletically. I think he's a much better athlete than some people think. And I know that's true because of the way it shows up on the defensive end. He was a guy, what made him so great defensively, and you mentioned numbers, which are all fantastic, but they just scratched the surface of why he was valuable. Right, yeah. He did so many things as a defender. True, People talk about switchability, the fact that you guard different players, and they, and they toss that around willy-nilly. Xavier Tillman could truly guard one through five, and I don't just mean – yeah, he can hold the fort down for a couple seconds against the point guard. He can truly guard a point guard mm. and guard a center and everybody in between. And those guys are rare. Yeah. yeah. You can't do that if you don't have a certain level of athletic ability, meaning the way your, your feet move, your lateral quickness. What What helps him be elite is that like a guy like Draymond, I think the way he thinks the game, that he's two steps ahead of everybody else, helps him mm-hmm. as well. It's not just athletic ability, but I think he gets a little shortchanged in that department because he's not, you know, Sean Kemp. Right. He's not this guy that, oh, my God, he jumps through the gym and he's 6'10", you know, and it's obvious. X is, is not that kind of athlete, but I do think he gets shortchanged there. Um, he's an elite passer for a guy his size. I think he averaged three assists a game last year, second on the team. That's a strength because it means that an NBA team really can look at him as a as a high level pick and roll guy. Mm-hmm. And I think he's going to be able to defend instantly at that league. What he doesn't yet do, or at least hasn't demonstrated in games, is shoot the deep ball. You mentioned twenty six percent from three. I think he's got better than that in him. His performance in the NBA Combine recently oh. suggests that he's worked on it. That video was in, un- incredible. Yeah. So he's, but you know, again, Combine stuff—that's you shooting without a defender in your face, without game pressure on you. You know, but look, I don't want to denigrate it. It, it looks to me like X has kept working, and I do think he's shown enough as a shooter to suggest that there's upside there. Mm. I don't think he's done improving in that category so he's got great hands we know that he's a very good finisher around the rim we know that um to me while you can't say oh my god he's got you know he's he's a steph curry shooter he's a world-class leaper um you know he doesn't have those kind of tools but when you look at every box he checks them Mm-hmm. There's just not a to me there aren't a lot of really any weaknesses per se except you might say he hasn't proven to be a reliable jump shooter but I'm going to bet that happens so somebody taking him as late as they do I'd be very comfortable betting on the idea that X's career is going to outperform lots and lots and lots of guys who get drafted before him mm-hmm. I just think that's very likely. And, and in Michigan State terms, he is clearly one of the elite defensive players Izzo's ever had. A better college defender than Draymond ever was, in my mind. I don't think it's even particularly close. Draymond didn't become a great defender until he got to the NBA. His value, if you remember at Michigan State, was mostly as an offensive player and a rebounder. Mm-hmm. He was a, a decent defender, a good defender, but he wasn't an elite guy. Xavier Tillman was elite. 
we've been talking throughout all these previews about how good the five position was in the Big Ten last year. In my opinion, the best of that illustrious group was Xavier Tillman, and that's in large part because of how good he was defensively. When you look at what he did head-to-head, going up against Garza, going up against Oturu, those guys had rough nights Mm -hmm. when they faced him. And he never wound up getting in much foul trouble all year. Nope, he did exactly. He did it. He played physically, but played smart. And and it helps when you develop a reputation for that too, because you get a benefit of the doubt with whistles, you know. But to to me, the two best of the Izzo era for sure, at, at defensively on the at the post on the inside, were Antonio Smith and um, Andre Hudson. Those are my two gold standard guys. There are other very good players. Drew Namick was really good. Um, Sutan was great late in his career. Yeah. yeah. You know, there, there have been other guys, but to me, those two are the gold standard, and now I put Xavier Tillman in with them. Mm-hmm. And then I think he had a better career than those guys did in other areas. Mm-hmm. So he's one of the best big men Izzo's had. Yeah. I mean, I think you put him – you know, we talked about where cash fits all time. Um, I haven't thought about it in detail. I'd have to go through it to really think it through. But X might get into my top 20 overall. He might. Mm-hmm. I just have to think about it a little more deeply. And and that's something to say about a guy who never put up, you know, really eye-popping numbers. But, you know, that's not the whole game. If you watched Michigan State, especially his last two years, you know how much he meant. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay. So then um, we also lose Kyle Arns, who was a six foot five red shirt senior. Um, you know, had a lot of struggle with a lot of health issues, back, ankle uh, throughout his career, um, but did come around and make some contributions last year, especially toward the end. Three point six points a game, forty um, percent from the floor, thirty nine percent and eighty. Uh, from the line, and he, he yeah. made a difference. He did. He sure did. He sure did, and he, he stayed healthy enough mm-hmm. to make a difference. Um, you know, the 39% on three was really – he had always shown potential. I think you always knew he was a capable shooter, but he never played steadily enough, mostly due to injuries, for that to really emerge. And for him to get consistency with the shot, well, he found that last year. Mm-hmm. I think he was a really good defensive player by the time he was done. He was always an upper-tier athlete. You know, I go back to that game against Florida his junior year. The put-back dunk to win it. Loose, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, that was – and keep in mind, that was Kyle Arnes maybe at 85 90% of what he once was. Mm-hmm. As a leaper, I mean, this, this was a kid who seriously is in the upper tier of, of jump athletes that Izzo's had. Um, I think it was a really good way for his career to end because he was a guy, for the most part, finally in health terms you could rely on. Mm-hmm. And, and that was nice to see. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's definitely he's a piece that they're going to need to replace, you know. The the – the contributions in terms of numbers don't look huge, but he filled a role that they've got to find a way 
to to get similar things mm-hmm. from what they've got left and coming in. And, and I don't know how easy that's going to be because he was kind of a unique player and they, they don't really have anybody with that same profile yeah. on the roster. Certainly not anybody with the experience that he had. I, I just really appreciated how fearless he was, you know, yep. just, just absolutely when he would, you know, make his mind up for, to go for a play, it was just 100%. And maybe that led a little bit to injury problems, but <laughs> I think it did. I mean, it's that's amazing the, to watch somebody go full bore though. Yeah. And that's always, you know, that's always the conundrum you have. You know, I think, I think actually a guy like Kirk Gibson in a different sport in baseball, um, you could perhaps make the argument that his style of play ended up costing him somewhat, mm-hmm. you know, in the long run. And there are other guys who fit that category where they just give so much of themselves physically that it ends up leading to health problems, which cut their career short or curb or put a cap yeah. on what they could be. I do think that's probably the case with Kyle Lawrence, but then on the other hand, you know, if that's who you are and that's your style of play, are you going to be of use to anybody if you try to rein it in? You know, it's a very difficult thing to answer. Yeah. So I'm just glad they got basically a full year out of it. Mm-hmm. So coming back, we have Aaron Henry, um, which was great news uh, <laughs> to get him back, certainly. He shot 44 from the floor, 34 from three, and 70 from the line. Um, and maybe not quite what the expectation was for him coming into last year. Uh, what do you think, Rod, coming into this year? I think that's an accurate statement because coming into last year, I think based on the way his freshman year ended, which was very impressive, the back end of the Big Ten schedule and then the tournament where he was really good, I think that expectations were, hey, this may be it for him, mm-hmm. you know, as a sophomore, that he was going to emerge as a star. And that would be it. And if that had happened, maybe it would have been it. But it didn't quite happen. Aaron still had, you know, by by any objective standard, you can't look at his year and say, wow, that was a down year. It's just where the expectation was, he didn't meet that. And it wasn't that, wow, he just couldn't shoot or – you know, his defensive intensity waned or it wasn't things like that. It's, it's a problem that's been there for him throughout his first two years, way too often, which is Aaron on a consistent basis does not play like the guy I think many people think he is. When you look at what he can do, you look at his body, you look at his athletic tools, you look at his skill set. There is no reason that he shouldn't step on the floor every single night this year and believe there's nobody any better than he is on that court Mm. because he has that kind of package, but he doesn't always play like a guy who believes that. In fact, he rarely plays like a guy who believes that. The few times he does, that's what gets people excited. Far too often, he's been a guy who defers and, you know, fits in and contributes here and there, he doesn't give you zero, but he doesn't 
play as assertively as his talent warrants. That's my opinion. And I think that's a lot of people's opinion, to be honest. And that's why he made a good decision, because I think if he pushed it and looked to go, I don't know that he would have been drafted. His his combine stuff would have likely been very impressive, mm-hmm. but that's I don't think that would have been enough. Uh, because for as impressive as he is athletically and you know his physicality, all that, on the wing there are a lot of guys who are comparable mm-hmm. in that way. You know what separates him, or what could separate him, is that. I think he's got a modicum of skill that a lot of those guys don't possess. He just hasn't shown it often enough. So coming into this season, Michigan State doesn't have a choice. Aaron Henry has to play like that guy pretty much every night. Mm-hmm. Michigan State to reach its potential. There, there's, there's no Cassius Winston. There's no Xavier Tillman to lean on anymore. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm not saying he's the only guy by any stretch. But this is his team. This is his time. He's an upperclassman. He's got essentially two years of starting under his belt. It's time. Uh, and the only thing that can hold him back, in my opinion, is his not being assertive. So we'll see if this offseason, if he's flipped that switch mentally mm-hmm. and psychologically. Uh, I think he's proven to be an elite perimeter defender. And also, at the same time, a guy who's got some versatility could guard bigger people. Um, I won't say he's an elite shooter, but he's proven to be a good one. Mm -hmm. He's a guy that shouldn't hesitate in taking open shots, and sometimes he does. Uh, At times, he is an electric finisher and dribble drive guy, but he also, at times, gets himself into trouble when he's indecisive, and he can turn the ball over that way. He's proven to be potentially, in my mind, an outstanding playmaker from the wing. I think Michigan State can and will run a lot of offense through him. Do you, think they'll, do, use him, do you think they'll use him on the block a little more? I don't know. I'd like to see them do it, but that's something I've talked about for years and years at Michigan State. Yeah, they don't tend and to. And they don't ever really do it. Denzel, would have, I think, would have been a load. A uh, guy they got coming in next year, Pierre Brooks, I think could be a load as a post-up guy. But I don't know if they will. MSU on occasion did that with Aaron. I hope they go to it more because physically, guys guarding him often really aren't good physical matchups. Yeah. You know, it's tough to find guys who can hang with Aaron Henry physically. And so if you get him the ball on the blocks, he can do damage. And he's proven to be able to finish down there, too. Mm. It's not like he looks like a fish out of water. So they should be using him to do a lot of things this year. In my mind, that's, that's where he fits. I don't think he's coming in and likely to score 20 points a night, but he needs to be one of their top two or three scorers, preferably no lower than two. Um, he needs to rebound more consistently than he has in the past. Again, that defensive rebounding performance, I put a lot of that on guys like him and Gabe. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two guys need to be a lot better in that area than they were. I, I think we know what he's going to be defensively, so I don't worry about that. And then I think they will run a lot of offense through him. He needs to continue to show that ability to create for other people. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if he if he plays to his potential, he's a guy who could be first-team all-league. 
you know, short of, I'm, I'm trying to think the guys on the wing in this conference this year, you know, Michigan's got a couple pretty good ones. I think Wieskamp at Iowa could be, could be really good potentially. Um, what's that? Desumo. Yeah, yeah. If you think about him as a Wayne, certainly he'd be the top guy, I guess. Um, but there, there just aren't a lot of guys. You know, all those guys I mentioned, like you know Franz Wagner, Isaiah Livers. Yeah, they, you know, they can make a claim, but I don't think those guys are better players potentially than Aaron Henry. Mm. I think Aaron Henry has higher ceilings than either of them. Yeah, but, yeah. but that doesn't mean much if he doesn't make good on it. You know. So it's it's a big year for Aaron Henry's career. I think this is the year he's got to decide, does he show that he's capable of being a focal point, or is he just always going to be a guy that kind of blends in? And if it's the latter, then maybe it's not an NBA future he's got. Mm-hmm. You know? Because you need to be that kind of guy as a collegian, really, to even have a hope of being a blend-in guy at the next level. <laughs> So now's the time. Yeah. All right. Uh, so then they bring back Rocket Watts, um, a sophomore, nine points a game, 39 from the floor, 28 from three, and 80 from the uh, line. Uh, but I think Rocket's a guy who really made some improvements. Um, he had a little bit of a, a injury issue with his leg uh, early in the year. Um, but by the end of the season, he was – the main guy handling backup point and and one of the best perimeter defenders they had. Yeah, let's start with that because that was consistent all mm-hmm. year long. And it was an area, frankly, I didn't know about because I'd never seen him really asked to do that. You know, it's hard to evaluate guys sometimes as defenders in high school. The one thing you usually get a feel for is, okay, somebody's got – a big wingspan and they got good instincts as a shot blocker that you can usually translate. But short of saying somebody's got the athletic potential to be a defender, it's often very hard. Like I will tell you candidly, I loved Keith Appling in high school. I mm-hmm. thought Keith Appling had one of the great high school careers I've ever seen, but that was mostly based on what he did as an offensive player. I did not imagine that he was going to instantly be as good a defender in college as he ended up being. You know, you could argue that he was much more consistent at that end of the floor than he was offensively mm. at MSU. Um, but did Keith have worlds more in the way of tools than Kalen Lucas? I don't know about that. But he was a much better defender than Kalen was. So sometimes it's hard to know. I never saw Rocket really lock somebody down Mm. when I saw him in AAU or in high school. He, the focal point with him was always scoring. He was a born scorer. Um, the fact that he came in and was not just competent defensively, but great defense. I'm not forgetting the, the biggest example of this. What I'm talking about is Charlie Bell. Charlie Bell was one of the all-time great scorers in Michigan high school history. That is what he was known for, flat out. But he made his bones at Michigan State from day one on the defensive end and Mm -hmm. is probably the best defensive guard Izzo's ever had from beginning to end of his career. In my opinion, he was. I don't know if Izzo feels that way, but I'm guessing he does. Yeah, I would think Um, so. 
you know, so I didn't see that coming. To me, that was a concern. I, at Rocket came in, I had really two main concerns. It was that, and then it was, you know, how quickly he adjusted to how hard you have to play and grasp MSU's concepts and show the attention to detail on defense that's needed. And then the second thing was, what kind of teammate he is? Is he easily able to discern what's a good shot from a bad shot? Is he able to resist his impulse to just go out and score himself and get others involved? Mm -hmm. And I think he was largely successful in that way, too. Not perfect, but largely successful. So defensively, I don't think there's any question. I think Michigan State could potentially have one of its best perimeter defense groups with with Aaron just starting with Aaron Henry and Rocket Watts as two starters. You're talking about two guys who probably, in my opinion, belong among the top five individual defenders in the conference. Mm-hmm. So that's a great place to start. The you mentioned his health. I dismiss his overall numbers especially from three, but but yeah. even as a shooter overall, because early on he was battling a leg injury, and you could see it. Not only was he struggling from three, he was having a hard time finishing layups consistently. And you're like, well, that's not him. But it, it was kind of tough, I guess, getting him to admit that something was wrong. Michigan State had to kind of push it to get that, and they sat him out for a game. And they got him straight partway into the Big Ten schedule. And from there, he took off, and and I would say over that run to close the season, you could make an argument that there wasn't anybody more impactful, including Cassius and Xavier, than Rocket Watts was. Yeah. I mean, he had stretches where he carried Michigan State and was a far better shooter than he had been early in the year. So, you know, uh, we talked about Michigan a while back. Franz Wagner had sort of a similar freshman season. His overall numbers probably don't do his complete body of work justice, you know, um, because when he got straight healthy, uh, straight health-wise, um, he was much better. And I definitely that was the case with Rocket. The thing that impressed me about Rocket last year, again, that I didn't really know, is that he showed glimpses and signs of being a really good playmaker. Yeah. I mean, he showed some passing instincts I didn't know he had. But now we're talking about him probably. Izzo's hemmed and hawed and hedged on it, but I think it's pretty likely he's going to be the starter at the point guard and he's going to play the lion's share of his minutes at that position. How does that look? Because he has not had to, he didn't have to do that last year Mm-mm. and never had to do it. I've seen him play point guard, but I've seen him play point guard in AAU or high school settings and it's a different thing. Uh, he's playing with different talent around him. He was asked to do different things. It's going to be a different deal here. MSU is not going to ask him to or expect him to play like Cassius. Rocket Watts is a scorer by mentality, and they're not going to take that away from him, nor should they. Mm-hmm. But he's still got to walk that line between getting his and making other people better. And that is something that comes down to a way you read the game and a mentality. And MSU's had success with guys playing that position 
who roughly played the game like Rocket. You know, Kalen Lucas, Keith Haplin, we just talked about those guys. Um, they were able to do it successfully. It's, there's not just one way to play point guard and be successful. We've seen it all different types at Michigan State over the years. But he's still got to walk that line. He's got to get better at shot recognition. You know, what's a good shot? What's one he should pass up on? Um, you know, so there's areas of improvement, but I'm optimistic that he's going to have a big year. Mm-hmm. I really am. And, and even though not many people are talking about him this way, I don't rule out that he could be a first team all league guy either. Both he and Aaron Henry have that kind of horsepower. Yeah. Yeah. That if, if Michigan State is successful, don't bet against them. Uh, so then you got, uh, Gabe Brown on the wing. Um, 6.8 points a game last year, 3.6 rebounds. Uh, and for the first half of the year, it looked like Gabe Brown had rediscovered something. Um, he was taking it hard to the rim, um, hitting threes, playing uh, improved defense. Uh, and then he came down with the, the flu um, and just wasn't really the same after that. He, he ends up with 44 from the floor, 34 from three, and 95 from the line. Uh, but... You're hearing some good things from him. Um, yep. Coming in the off season, he seems like a hard worker. Well, he's always been that. You know, he has always been a gym rat. And I also think if you look at pictures of him, the way he's developed his body from his senior year at Belleville till now, it's impressive. I mean, he's not the first guy we've been able to say that about at Michigan State. They got a pretty good track record. But still, you don't get there without putting in the work. And he has. He's always been known as a worker, so that doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. You know, you used the word rediscovered. I would actually probably say discovered. Discovered. <laughs> yes. Because up until last year, I never saw Gabe Brown in high school or his freshman year at MSU take people off the dribble and go to the rim. Yeah. That just was not a part of his game. And you wondered, that's not an easy thing to develop, by the way. I, I think the hardest thing, the hardest skill set, once you've gotten to like the high school level to develop and to change is your handle. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. I mean, people may differ with that, but I've seen guys change their shot and get a lot better. I've seen guys learn how to defend and get better, um, get stronger. And therefore they're more competitive as a rebounder. You know, I've seen that it's pretty rare to see a guy go from just not being any kind of threat off the dribble to really doing it. And Gabe looked like he was making that kind of progress. And then, as you say, he got sick. Once he came back, it didn't cause him to miss a lot of games, but it definitely derailed him, I felt. Mm-hmm. Izzo has said he had as good a summer, a good, as good a summer as anyone on the roster. Again, not surprising to me because of the way I know he works. Mm-hmm. He's an easy kid to root for. You know, I'm sure most of our listeners know the story. He lost his dad while he was in high school, so he was kind of finished out that time with his brothers kind of raising him. Um, so not an easy set of circumstances. He was a kid who dreamed about playing at Michigan State. It was his dad's dream for him. So more than most guys who commit to MSU, I think it's easy to feel that connection, that this is a guy who understands fully uh, what it means uh, to be at Michigan State, to be given these opportunities. And I think, to his credit, he's working 
as hard as he can um, to make good on those. Mm-hmm. We'll see how it translates. I, I, I think well, – You're like, yeah, likely looking at him being probably the sixth, sixth first guy off the bench, I would think, now that they've – it looks like they're leaning towards Langford starting. That's, that's how recent – you know, if, if we had recorded this a month ago – we probably would have been talking about Gabe as the starter Mm -hmm. because I know I've felt you got to be skeptical about Josh's health, but you're right. The way that Izzo has been talking, it seems like Gabe probably is going to get used in that Morris Peterson sixth man role. And that's at least a start. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's okay because I think he can thrive in that. Um, I think he's gotten steadily better defensively. And I think, that's going to continue, and you're talking about a kid who's maybe six eight, with a seven foot wingspan on the wing. If he plays a lot, and I think he will clearly, mm-hmm. and you've got a lineup at times of Rocket Watts, Aaron Henry, and Gabe Brown as your three perimeters, uh, perimeter players, that might be as good a defensive threesome as MSU's had in a long time. Mm-hmm. Because I think the other two guys are there, and I think Gabe's getting there. Offensively, if he can do more of those things we were just talking about, vary his contributions, that's a big help. As a shooter, you know, he's 34% from three last year. I think he was a little better than that as a freshman. Mm. I think he's a guy I could see in the high 30s. I don't know that I would expect him to be more than that just because the entire time I've watched him, he's always been a streaky shooter as opposed to a guy who just is a dead eye, you know, the way Cassius was. Yeah. Uh, Gabe's always been a guy who could go out and hit you three pretty quick and then he might miss five. Mm. You know, that's just kind of who he's been, but that's good enough. If he's doing these other things, he's got to be a better, more consistent rebounder. Getting stronger should help him. Mm. Uh, I root for him though. I think he's, I think he's an easy kid to like. He's enthusiastic. He wants to compete. He wants to win. Uh, and I think he's getting there to the point where maybe he's really ready to kind of take off. Mm. I thought it might be last year, and he looked to me like he was on target for that. And then, again, the illness got him derailed. So if he stays healthy, maybe it happens this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Malik Hall, six seven sophomore, comes back. Uh, averaged 4.6 points a game, 3.7 rebounds, 54 from the floor, 33 from uh, three, and 73 from the line. Uh, so fairly productive freshman year from Malik. He started a few games. Um, what's your what's your thought about him this year? I think big things are are in store for Malik Hall as well. What what I'm going to be interested in is how Michigan State uses him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a starter. You know, he had that big game against Seton Hall where he shot the lights out, and really they don't win it without him. And then he kind of tailed off for a bit. But by the by that stretch run where Michigan State got good, Malik Hall was starting. And the reason he was starting is Izzo liked him defensively. He liked his compete level, the way he was rebounding. And then he was able to give him, you know, a little something offensively. Mm-hmm. I think he's got a lot more than a little something in terms of his offensive potential. But I think it's those other things that – make it highly likely that he's going to play a big role. To me, the question is where he fits in. Uh, and, and we're going to talk about these other guys. You know, Michigan State has a hole at the five mm-hmm. with Xavier Tillman gone. So how do they replace it? 
I could see a scenario where Malik Hall is a guy who's playing off the bench, and I could see a scenario where he's starting. Uh, it just depends on what Izzo wants to do with the five. Uh, he's obviously proven he could hang at the four. Mm-hmm. You know, he's versatile enough defensively, and he's athletic enough, and yet tough enough that he can guard a variety of guys. So you like the way he fits in there. I also think it's possible that he could play some on the wing because I think Michigan State might need a little bit of help there. It kind of depends on the health of a few people, Josh Lanford, A.J. Hogger being the the most obvious candidates because they both got history Mm -hmm. in that area. Um, So how healthy is Michigan State on the perimeter, and might they need Malik's help there? Uh, But I like him. I mean, he showed potential as a guy who could stretch the floor, yet he's also tough as hell around the basket. He's good, in, I think, could be potentially really good in transition. And I think he's got a little bit of garbage man in him, too. Mm-hmm. So, to me, he's got a lot more to give offensively. And I think we saw he's got he's already kind of getting there in terms of his ability to understand what MSU needs defensively and deliver that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you got Marcus Bingham, 6'11", junior, coming in. Um, 3.5 points a game, 3.6 rebounds, uh, and a block and a half in just only about 11 minutes a game. Um, but Marcus Bingham seems to be kind of a wild card uh, with this team. What do you expect from him? I don't know. <laughs> How's that for a cop-out? Uh, don't know, because I don't think anybody knows. I, I would venture to guess that if you asked Izzo that question, he'd say, I don't know. Marcus last year showed this much. He showed that on occasion, on the right night with the right matchup, he can be an impactful player. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played very well, I thought, against Kentucky in the opener. And then I thought his best game, clearly, which I think a lot of listeners probably remember, was that first matchup against Illinois at Breslin where he just shut Kofi Coburn down. Yeah. Absolutely. And Marcus, I don't know if he even scored a point in that game, but he was so good as a defender and as a rebounder. And that was a matchup that on paper you might have thought he'd have problems because Coburn is so strong. Yeah. You know, I know I thought, well, he might just get blasted out of there. But MSU – you know, one of the one of the interesting things is that, and I'm not trying to throw any shade at X because I think he was out an elite defensive player. But one of the things Michigan State did do with some frequency, especially in the first half of the year, is they wouldn't match X up on a five man. Mm-hmm. They would leave that to Markey and then other guys like Kithier or whoever else played that position. Um, and sometimes it worked, as in that Illinois game. You know, what Marcus Bingham has is elite length. He's got a seven foot four inch wingspan. He's about six eleven anyway, but he plays bigger than that. Uh, and at times he's shown a nice knack for rebounding. He's gotten better there as he's gotten a little stronger. Um he's a decent enough athlete at the position running the floor that I think he can do some things in the transition game occasionally, mm-hmm. you know, so there, there are things there. The problems are 
mostly boil down to inconsistency. He came in with a reputation as a guy who could really stretch the floor as a shooter. And I saw him do that in AAU. And his freshman season, in limited opportunities, he actually shot the three pretty well. Yeah. Last year, he shot it miserably. And so where he fits in this year, that's a big part of it. Can he get back some consistency as a jump shooter? I don't know. How much stronger has he gotten? I don't know. I've seen pictures, which he looks like he's gotten a little bigger. Yeah, bigger in the shoulders, at least. Yeah, but, you know, that's not the whole deal. Your lower body matters a lot, too, at that position. And I don't know that he looks like he's gotten any stronger there. So does he have a better base to work with? Because, you know, sometimes if you don't, you just kind of get blasted until you're too far underneath the rim to do much. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, I think at a minimum, his length gives him a chance to help Michigan State in a role as a rim protector. So I think he's going to play. How much he plays, boy, you got me. And a lot of this also, it comes down to consistency. But by that, I don't just mean consistency of production. I mean consistency in terms of focus. Mm. Because sometimes Marky has a tendency to kind of drift mentally. And he's not as locked in as he needs to be. You know, how effective is he as a pick and roll defender? There's a big burden placed on the five man at Michigan State in that role. Yeah. You know, in any school really in the modern game. And busting your ass down the floor. (laughs) Yeah. Can he play that? Can he play out out on the floor effectively? I think he struggled with that last year. Yeah. So is he better? I don't know. I, I will say this. If there's anybody on Michigan State's roster that I think might have gotten dealt a bad hand by the lockout or the the uh, lockout <laughs> by the lockdown and the inability to be around team resources and receive Michigan State coaching and strength and conditioning and nutrition and all that uh, for as long as they were away from it this year, I think it's Marcus Bato. Because he yeah. needed it more than anybody else. So I don't know where he's at. I mean, if you tell me he comes out in the opener and he goes 10 and 10 and blocks three shots, I'm not going to be shocked. He's capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Can he do that consistently enough to have a big role? Or is he kind of a bit part guy like he was for a lot of last season? Kind of like a matchup guy. Yeah. yeah. And, and that might be what he is ultimately. But look, when they recruited him, they thought he could be a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about it, right? It really came down to he and Travion Williams, and they went with Markey. And I think there was sound reasoning in that on both ends of that equation, but he hasn't yet. You know, it's fine and dandy to talk about, well, this kid's got NBA potential based on tools, you know? Mm-hmm. At some point, you gotta, you gotta make those tools actual. And I think this is kind of it for him. This is his junior year. If he doesn't do it this year, especially with guys I think Michigan State has coming in. I don't know how big his role would be as a senior if he hasn't laid claim mm-hmm. to that. So it's a big year for him. Uh, and then you got Thomas Kithier, 6'8", junior, um, averaged 3.1 points a game, 3.2 rebounds in 12 and a half minutes. Um, and I don't think Thomas had as big a role as we may have thought he would have coming into this year. Um, or, or coming into last year, I, wish, I should say, um, 
I don't know what the deal was there, right? It's, I felt like he should have played more, but I, I don't know. I, I'd agree with you there. I thought he was going to play a bigger role than he did. And, and I thought that because for the back half of his freshman season, when Ward got hurt and they just needed somebody to step up, mm-hmm. Thomas was that guy. And he played really smart basketball. He played within himself. You know, he did everything right, it seemed. Nothing spectacular, but he was just, he was in the right spot at the right time. He understood what they wanted to do defensively and was versatile enough to accomplish it. He rebounded decently. He finished plays. He had a knack for getting open. Um, had good hands. You know, all of those things were on display. I never thought, he, he was never a workout warrior kind of guy, but I really thought, you know, he's finding a niche, and I thought he would be the starter at the four. He was to begin the season, but it didn't last long. And it really took until late in the year for him to find his equilibrium again. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was pretty good once again down the stretch. Uh, his numbers weren't bad. I mean, he still shot the ball incredibly well. I think he was 60% plus as a shooter. Yeah, from 67 the from the floor. Right. So you can't, I mean, that's two-thirds of your shots you're hitting. That's that's a guy who understands who he is. The funny thing is, he's not just a guy who should be shooting layups. Thomas Kithier's got some range. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. I saw it before he got to Michigan State, and he's occasionally shown it at Michigan State on rare occasions. I think his ability, we talked about Marcus, can he play pick-and-roll defense? Thomas Kithier can. You know, the question is, can he give you enough else to warrant bigger minutes. I don't know. It remains to be seen. Um, you know, he's kind of the forgotten guy in this group just because he's never had that high upside kind of profile. Yeah. But I, I'm going to be surprised if he doesn't find his way into a regular role just because I think he's a guy who they know they can count on for certain things that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, he could set good picks, and he does. He's willing to, and he does it. He can defend without getting blown up. He can finish plays. You know, um, he might not go out and get you 20 and 10, but he can do some things that help you win, and I think that's going to be worth some minutes. But mm-hmm. we'll see. There's a lot of bodies in that group. Uh, and then Foster Lawyer, 5'11", junior, Um you know, 2.9 points a game, 29 assists to 14 turnovers, um, shot 45 from the floor, but 45% from three, 91 from the line, uh, but did struggle defensively and struggled with some pressure. Um, so we've heard a lot of good things about Foster Lawyer coming into this season. He named a captain. Um, what do you think? Uh, again, it's kind of an I don't know. I, I I think you're absolutely right about that. Izzo spent a lot of time talking him up, and the fact that he was named a co-captain by his co-captain. teammates, yeah, suggest yeah with with Henry and Langford. Yep. But the fact that he was named to that spot suggests to me that there's some belief in him from his teammates. I don't think it's all just happy talk from the coach. Mm-hmm. But I'm also not in a spot where I think you can just assume, hey, he's going to come out and be really good this year. He needs to prove it. Mm-hmm. Now, he did make progress in some ways from his freshman season. 
Foster Lawyer is one of the better high school shooters I've ever seen in this state. And he really struggled with the three as a freshman. You know, he had a big game in the Big Ten tournament against Ohio State, and that was kind of it. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was the one big moment where, you know, he hit a, several threes, and and I thought, well, that's the guy I remember. <laughs> Haven't seen him all year. He continued that in the last season. You know, 45% from three, that's, that's shooting it. You know, for anybody. And you, you assumed that's what he could do. Where it's gone off the rails, I think, and defensively, I think everybody knew there would be issues there. You know, because of his size and he's not a world class athlete, he was never going to be a great defender. The, the whole key was much like with Cassius, can you get him to be functional? And that was a big who knows in terms of how long that might take. But I think where it's gone off the rails in terms of the actuality not meeting the expectations, at least for me, is that I never dreamed he would have the problem getting, being able to initiate offense Mm -hmm. that he's had. You mentioned dealing with pressure, and that's really it. There's a book on Foster Lawyer, and that book says you try to swallow him up with pressure. He gets the ball defensively, you attack him. You drape a guy on him, maybe you bring a double, and and he kind of panics and can't handle it, and you can get some turnovers generated that way, or you can force Michigan State to go deep into clocks because it takes so long for them to get out of it. Mm. You know, any way you slice it, it's to your advantage. If he's going to be a functional player, meaning at the very least a guy you can rely on to be an effective backup at that position, which I think right now is the ceiling of what you can expect. He's got to be able to do better in that way, in mm-hmm. that facet of the game. Now, he knows that. and now The coaching staff knows it. They say he's gotten stronger. That's part of it. Has he made other – it surprises me because I saw him play against elite athletes in AAU for a few years running, and it just – it was not the issue that it's been – as a Big Ten player. Now, you could say, well, of course not. He's going to college. Yeah, but you got to understand, when you're playing against those kind of athletes, the the kind of opposition he was facing in AAU, Mm -hmm. he was playing against elite guys. The guys you're facing there are the best of the best. It's it's better relative to the level. It's more consistently good than what you're seeing, let's say, when you're playing a standard non-conference game. Yeah, you know, some Houston Baptist or something. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he just didn't have these problems. And yet, he's consistently had them at Michigan State. So that, to me, is where the rubber hits the road for Foster Lawyer. And, and It seems you know, like he I, runs the team well. If he's, not, if he's not getting pressured hard, he does do a good job getting them into the offense, though. Oh, absolutely. No, there's no issue there. I mean, he's not a, you know, Tom Tom Nairn used to have that problem of just kind of, pounding the ball and not being able to get them into the offense quickly enough. Yeah. That's not a problem for foster lawyer. He, Josh Langford had a statement a couple of weeks back where he said, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the effect of foster lawyer sees the court better than any guard he's ever played with. Well, Josh Langford played with Cassius Winston. Yeah. Now <laughs> is that, you know, talk trying to boost his teammate, maybe a little, but I will tell you, 
I thought Foster Lawyer would be a very good playmaker at the Big Ten level. So that is not a surprise to me that Josh would say that. I think he does have great court vision. He's a capable and willing and instinctive passer. Mm -hmm. But again, if you can't get your team into offense because you can't deal with pressure, it doesn't matter. So to me, I look at guys like, um, you know, we in a recent uh, podcast preview, we, we talked about Iowa. Yeah, and, Bohannon. you know, a guy, a guy like Bohannon or a guy like Spike Albrecht who played at Michigan and then Purdue, those are guys that are models to me for lawyer because those guys were terrible defenders. I don't think Foster would be any worse than those guys were, really. Mm. Um, but they were, and they were also great shooters, and so is Foster. But the difference between their careers and his to date is they were able to deal with pressure. They were able to get their teams into offense, and therefore they could earn a consistent role, mm. even though they had some weaknesses. That's where Foster's at. If he can do that, then he can play. If he can't, they got to go another way. Mm. Uh, so then you got Julius Marble, 6'8", sophomore. Um, didn't get a ton of time, but uh, he did average 1.7 points a game, 1.5 rebounds in about 5.6 minutes. Um, 56% from the floor, 61% from the line. Uh, but, man, I, I liked what I saw in limited roles with, with Marble. For sure. For sure. You know, physically, he was the guy that most resembled Xavier Tillman mm -hmm. in the lineup, and he, and he had a willingness to throw his body around some. I think he showed potential to be a good defender. I think he showed flashes of being a good and versatile offensive player because he did hit some mid-range jumpers when he played enough, and, they, and he looked comfortable doing it, and that was the book on him coming out of high school. So it wasn't a total surprise. And then at the same time, you know, he showed some rudimentary post game. He had a nice jump hook he showed off on a couple of occasions. Mm -hmm. He's willing to compete inside, so I think he could be a put-back guy. He's a good enough athlete that he should be an effective rim runner. Uh, what I think is going to be the key for him, and I would say this about all their big guys, is how much progress has he made as a defensive player? Mm -hmm. Because... To me, whoever shows up best there, and I don't just mean shot blocking, of course. I mean, can you handle pick and roll? Can you play effectively out on the floor? Those are the things that you ask of a fight. Can you switch? Mm -hmm. Push you guys know, can off trust, of spots. Can they right? Can they trust you? You know, switching onto a one or a wing if if there's screen action. Um, who does that best has a leg up on minutes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Marble showed potential, but obviously as a freshman, he, he didn't quite have that breakthrough that a guy like X made later in his freshman year, where it's just like by the time February rolled around, oh, he's, he's actually reliable mm. in that way. And we got to find minutes for him, you know, and X passed guys that were redshirt seniors. Mm hmm. Because he was so good. Who were good defensive players. I mean, Gavin Schilling was a good defensive player, but X passed him the rotation because he was better. Yeah. Primarily, he, that was the reason why. So Julius didn't have that breakthrough, I don't think. But then again, the guy he was playing behind was one of the best they've ever had. So maybe we don't know how much progress he made because he was never going to be better than X. Um, 
it'll be interesting to see. I think Julius Marble has real potential for sure. But where he fits into this mix, they've got so many guys inside that all have, you know, things you like and things you question. I don't know. I don't think Izzo seems to know just yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then you got Josh Langford, the six, uh, fifth year player, wing, um, six five, but he has missed 23 months of basketball. Uh, but we yeah. are hearing some good things. Um, about him, Izzo seems to think that he's going to be the starter on the wing. He made a comment the other day that Josh is, and I think I've got this right, as close to 100% back as he's going to be. Now, you could read that a couple different ways, but (laughs) I gather he meant a positive thing by that, that basically, hey, he might not be everything in totality he was before, but he's pretty close. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how I took it. We're not going to know until he starts playing, right? Mm. Um, I think you have to be skeptical because of the health history, and I'm rooting for everybody's rooting for him, obviously. If Josh Langford can be 80% of what he was when he got hurt, that's a hell of a player. Yeah. And a guy Michigan State could absolutely use, and probably a guy who, as we were talking about, would be worthy of starting. Mm. So he's a career 40% plus three-point shooter. He's also capable of giving you scoring in the mid-range. I think he understands MSU's transition game. And while I've always thought he was a tad overrated as a defender, he's pretty good. Mm. You put him in that mix with those other guys we talked about, he fits in. Yeah. And Michigan State wouldn't be a lot weaker for playing him defensively. And when he went out, he was was, uh, taking it to the rim a little bit better, too. He was. So to me, it all starts with health, mm. you know, how healthy is he? How many minutes can he give them? Um, and then after that, you start looking at production. What, what is, what is he giving them? You know, I think there's reason to be optimistic, but personally, I'm still cautious about it until I see him play. Yeah. yeah. Fortunately, we're not that many days away from seeing that. So mm-hmm. we're going to know soon enough what we've got, but Hey, if Josh Langford can be, as I said, can be 80% of what he was before he went down, that's a double-digit score that you're adding to your perimeter group. Mm-hmm. Can MSU use that? Hell yes. Mm-hmm. And it lengthens their bench, too, because then, as you were alluding to, then you talk about, well, maybe Gabe Brown comes off the bench. Maybe then you don't need to ask as much of guys like Lawyer or Hogard coming off the bench. You know, and you can you can lengthen that thing a little bit. Maybe you don't have to play Malik Hall on the wing. He concentrate on playing the four. Mm-hmm. So it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of guys coming back. Um, uh, for newcomers, uh, you start with Joey Hauser, the six nine transfer from Marquette. He's got two years of eligibility left. Um, a, a forty plus three point shooter in his freshman year at Marquette. Um, Kind of a lot riding on uh, Hauser coming into this. Yeah. I mean, he's MSU needs him to be really good, but I think there's every reason to believe he will be. Mm-hmm. He was really good as a freshman at Marquette. I mean, the numbers weren't eye-popping because he was playing with a lot of, at least offensively, he was playing with a lot of guys with talent. His brother Sam was now at Virginia. 
was a very good scorer. And then, of course, they had Marcus Howard taking 90 shots a game. Yeah. Yeah. At, at the point. Um, part of the reason the Hauser brothers left. But, um, he was efficient. You said he was a 40% plus three point shooter. So this is a guy who truly is a stretch big in a way that Michigan State really didn't have last year. Mm. You know, that was one problem they had the year prior. I think Kenny got good enough that you could rely on him. Like over the second half of the season, Kenny Goins was a good enough three-point shooter that he gave MSU that element. Yeah. yeah. Last year, they never really had it. You know, we talked – I think they thought and hoped that maybe X could be that. And he was okay, but sub-30% really isn't ideal. And nobody else – you know, Marky, as we said, had a terrible year shooting the three – Malik Hall gave them bursts of it, but wasn't ever going to be the answer, really, mm-hmm. in that way. Well, that that's a problem that's now solved, because Joey Hauser can flat-out shoot it. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, though. That's not all he does. He's actually got a really good post game, so he's a guy they can put on the blocks and go to work. And again, that's something I don't think they really had last year as much. X did so many things well. But X offensive contributions were much more in the pick and roll and in transition. Mm-hmm. He wasn't ever a great post-up player. It, it's been since Nick Ward yeah. that they had a guy, which only goes back two years, but it's been since Nick Ward they had a guy they could throw the ball into on the blocks and say, go to work. I think Joey Hauser can give them that. I'm not saying he's quite what Nick was, mm-hmm. but I think he's good. He's a weapon that they will use in that way. And then you hear Izzo talk about him as a passer. And he puts him in the same breath as guys like Draymond, which says, or X, which says a ton. So I think they're going to use him to run a lot of offense through the way they have with those types of guys in the past. That plus Aaron Henry being able to do some of that, I think should take some of the burden off rocket Watts, which is good for Michigan state. Um, to me, and he, he was a good rebounder as a freshman, I see no reason to expect that he won't be a guy. If he plays the kind of minutes I figure he plays, I think seven or eight boards a game is kind of a low end to expect, and he might even be a little bit better than that. Mm. So all those things I, I expect to see. What I don't know is what he's going to be like defensively. Izzo seems to be... Um, very happy with the strides he's made, but until you see it, you don't know. Mm-hmm. And he came out of a program in Marquette that frankly didn't ever give a shit about defending anybody. <laughs> That's just what's happened in that program. They are a, they are a team that looks to just go out and outscore you. That's how they play. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he was asked to do much. The good news is he had that whole year last year sitting out to get acclimated. But has that been enough? You know, we're going to see. I also think the interesting thing with him is how is he utilized? Naturally, he's a four, uh-huh. you know. But I can see scenarios because every one of these big guys we've talked about, and one more we'll talk about in a minute, all have strengths, but none of them are obvious guys that you look at and say, oh, for sure he's an answer for this big a role. Mm. I think the two guys you feel most confident in 
And that whole post group, all six of those guys, if you're Tom Izzo, at least in my opinion, or Joey Hauser and Malik Call, does that mean perhaps you start them both? Hmm. You start Malik at the four and you play Joey as an undersized five. Or maybe not even start them, but play them together a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's possible because you want to get your best five players on the floor. And I think that might be part Michigan State's best five, at least for stretches. So I'm going to be interested in that. I think for a lot of the offseason, the assumption was Hauser's a starter at four, and then it's this combination of, you know, Marble and Bainham and Sissoko and maybe Kithier at the five. I don't know about that. Could Hauser figure in that way and and he and Hall play more minutes together? Yeah, I think it's possible. Mm-hmm. But we'll have to see. And I think some of the answer to that comes down to defense. Because Joey's not a shot blocker. So if you play that lineup, you are not getting a lot of rim protection out there. Mm. Which Michigan State has relied on more and more in recent years. It's it's yeah. a philosophical shift that Izzo's made to account for the different way the game is played now. If you've got a lineup of Hauser and Hall, you're not getting a lot of shot blocking. Whereas some of these other guys, Bainham, Sissoko, they can bring that. Um, can MSU live with that? Are they better off playing that way? I don't know. Mm. So major role for Joey Hauser, no question. Ceiling, first team all-conference. No question. Will he play to that ceiling? I don't know. Okay. Uh, and then A.J. Hogger, one of the two freshmen they bring in. Um, combo guard, 6'4". Um, looks like he's had what, shoulder surgery or some sort of surgery. Uh, no, it's like meniscus. Meniscus, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they expect that he's going to be back, no problem, for the first game, but I think the issue there is he already had some conditioning work to do, so how much of a setback has that been? Again, this is why Josh Langford, if he can play heavy minutes, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Because if he can't, then Hogard becomes a much bigger part of things, I think, out of necessity. You know, he's intriguing. He's about 6'3", maybe even 6'4". He's kind of burly. Um, and yet, he's got great vision. He's a capable passer. He thinks he's a point guard. Um, you know, kind of a streakily effective jump shooter. Not a knockdown shooter, I don't think, at this time. But a guy who could be okay out there. The question mark marks I have with him are conditioning and defense right now you know those would be the things that to me are limiters it might be a scenario where we don't see as much from him early but maybe as we roll into like february assuming everything keeps rolling in terms of the sport (laughs) um you know maybe by then he's ready to play a bigger role i don't know that that's one scenario i've thought about but i definitely think health you know all else being equal in terms of his health i think he's gonna have to play some Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it, right now it's a question of how big a role is it kind of a cameo role or is he playing 10 minutes, 15 minutes a game? I, we'll see. I think it's going to come down to those things I mentioned. Uh, and then Matty Sissoko, 6'9", um, 
uh, product of Molly, 7-4 wingspan. Um, hearing some really good things about him, Rod. Yeah, really good things, but then some caveats, at least early on. You mentioned the physical tools, not just 6'9", but built like he was carved out of the side of a mountain. Mm-hmm. I mean, physically, this is a kid who is ready to go, and he's athletic. They think he could be an outstanding rim runner. Um, you know, the physical tools to be a defender out on the floor there, how quickly he's grasped things, that remains to be seen. That 7-4 wingspan means he should be able to provide instantly uh, a shot-blocking presence, you know, rim protection. So you love all that. He apparently plays extremely hard and consistently hard, great motor. You love that. You know, effort and physical tools usually are going to add up to good things for a big kid. Mm-hmm. The thing that should give you pause is Izzo's compared him to Alain Agagne. Now, I loved Alain Agagne, and Alain Agagne was part of a lot of winning at Michigan State. You know, um, he went to uh, won a national championship, went to a couple Final Fours and an Elite Eight, started a lot of games, was one of the better defensive players among big men in the Izzo era. All that was true. But he also had a horrible time avoiding foul trouble. Mm. And that's what Izzo was alluding to. And it's not surprising. You're talking about a young big man who doesn't have like the, the same level of experience in the sport that most guys playing college basketball, even as freshmen, have. Hit Matty's experience is much more limited. You know, he kind of was discovered uh-huh. in Maui and, and then came over to the U.S. to play at a prep school in Utah and has developed from there. But when you don't have that kind of experience, understanding how to play and, and avoid fouls is something that can be difficult. So those comments are kind of um, capping my level of enthusiasm. I think in terms of a physical set of tools, he's the most impressive guy they've got. Mm-hmm. And it's probably enough, even with the concern about fouls, that he can carve out a role just by virtue of what he's going to bring physically. But if you are expecting Matty Sissoko to be a 25-minute-a-night guy this year, I would say you're probably asking for a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think he needs some time to learn and he's going to get that. And I think it's going to be experiences he has actually playing at times, but it's probably not going to be in a starter's role, at least not right on, right away. Now he could be someone who the light switches on like it has for guys like X or day day. And later in his freshman year, Hey, all of a sudden he's getting it. And then those physical tools start to really add up, you know, and, and impact games. But my expectation is more limited. My expectation is he's going to get turns at bat, so to speak, and they're going to let his tools impact the game as best they can until fouls kind of, and an experience kind of limit that. Uh, but people have been very impressed with him over the summer. I think he, he definitely shows you know, that word upside all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's easy to put the pieces together and envision what he'll be, but I don't think he's that just yet. 
Okay. Well, um, you know, when they have a, a, a five-man junior class here, the depth on this team is just unbelievable. Uh, I yeah. mean, y- you could just imagine what these scrimmages would look like. It'd probably be similar to just two Big Ten teams playing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's, sure. And it is. It's it's a deep team, and Izzo said that. And he likes that. The flip side of it is, he said the problem is that it also means they haven't maybe had enough guys separate themselves. You know, I, yeah. I feel pretty confident in Hauser and Henry and Watts. Mm-hmm. Izzo said the first two. I, I think I'm going to be shocked if Rocket Watts isn't a starter. I think from there it gets more questionable. It, the Josh Gabe Brown issue on the wing is not a big deal. I think either way that goes, you're pretty comfortable. Mm. It's that fifth spot. It's what do they do? Do they start Marky the way they often did last year and and kind of keep Hauser mostly at the four and then rotate in, you know, kind of cobble it together, which Izzo has alluded to with Marky and presumably uh, Sissoko and Marble and maybe even Kithier all kind of working together to eat up those 40 minutes? Mm-hmm. Or – do they expand a role for Malik Hall and maybe play him alongside Hauser and play Hauser some at the five? I, I think that's where the intrigue really is, you know, in terms of in terms of the starting lineup. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so overall, uh, we have Michigan State at three. Um, any you know final thoughts on Michigan State? Well, you know, I think, and we've we've probably kind of touched on a lot of this stuff, but it, it probably makes some sense to talk about you know what I think are are the bigger questions. You know, this is a team with a lot of strengths. Don't get me wrong, but it's also a team that's got some question marks coming in. And I I think the first one, the biggest one to me, is the point guard spot. Mm. Can't Rocket play winning basketball as your primary point guard? And if he can't, then what's the answer? That's and, and I don't like that part, yeah. <laughs> I have to tell you, because I don't think there is another answer for big minutes at that position. I think between Lawyer and Hoggard, they can cobble together enough, I'm optimistic, to get decent play at that spot, to get by with. But to me, Rocket has to be effective for this team to win. And again, that doesn't mean he plays the game like Cassius. There's a, a different way that they're going to play. Mm-hmm. But can he walk that line and balance those responsibilities he has? I think he can. Um, but you got to see him do it. So that's the first thing. Then, as we've just been talking about, what do they do in that post group? You know, what's the answer at the five? Is it a bunch of guys kind of running through there and they just try to through? through a war of attrition, just <laughs> throwing bodies out there. Do they try to get enough? Maybe. Or do they go small and try to get it done that way? That's not usually Izzo's preferred method, but I, I don't think it can be ruled out. Mm-hmm. That they would play Hauser a lot there to enable Hall to see the floor more. Um, it's an open question, you know. Um, I would also say uh, Josh Langford's health, obviously, is a big deal for this team. If he's healthy and somewhere near the guy he used to be, hey, 
that this is definitely a team that can realistically think about winning a Big Ten championship and and having a successful tournament. Mm-hmm. You know, with with him in the mix. Uh, and then I think the other two things would be, um, are they as good defensively as I think they can be? Because I think this is a team that potentially could be really good defensively. Mm-hmm. I feel very confident about the top four guys in that perimeter group. Now, once you get to Lawyer and Hogard, concerns come back in the mix. But what you hope is that their minutes are more limited. That group of, of Watts and Henry and Brown and Langford, that's really good stuff. And if you're good on the perimeter, you should be a good defensive team just based on that. Uh-huh. Then it becomes about your interior guys. you got a couple guys that look like they can bring shot blocking. You don't know how much they're going to play. Can anybody at that five spot handle MSU's pick-and-roll responsibilities, or are they going to deal with kind of getting exploited a little bit there? I like Malik Hall, and I like Thomas Kithier in terms of their understanding of the basics. Mm-hmm. Um, but neither of those guys have physical tools to make, you know, massive impacts in every area. They're guys you rely on to be solid. So can they find that balance between being solid enough and yet having guys who can also make big plays on the interior? If all that comes together, I do think this can be, you know, I don't see any reason this can't be a top 10 kind of defensive unit nationally. It's got that potential to me. Um, We'll see how it plays out. And then the last thing would be, I look at the weaknesses from last year, and the most glaring one by far to me was defensive rebounding. Yeah. Got to get better. Got to get better. And they've got guys who can get them better, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason in the world that Aaron Henry can't be an elite defensive rebounder, an elite rebounder both ends for the position. None. He's strong. He's got good instinct. He's got quick instincts for the ball. And he's athletic as all get out. What's missing? I think it's, we've talked about it. How assertive is he consistently? Where's his mindset at? Is he attacking the game or is he kind of waiting for it to come to him? Can Gabe Brown be better than he's been? Absolutely, I think he can. Will he be? I don't know. You know, so if those guys are better, then Michigan State's defensive rebounding should be better. But I think those are the things that I'm thinking about going into the year that will tell the story of where this team slots. As you said, we've got them third in the league. To me, they are very much in that mix to win a fourth straight Big Ten title. I think they can be a team that goes deep in the tournament, but there's fragility too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, <laughs> anytime you're entering a season where you don't have a guy who's established himself as a star, and we've had seasons like this at MSU before, you know, or I, I think it was the case really a couple of years ago. We knew Cassius Winston was a really good player. We knew Josh was a really good player. We had started to see X kind of break through. Nick Ward had shown some things. Mm-hmm. But the stars of the show the year prior were Miles and Jaron, really. Mm-hmm. And those guys were gone. Well, other guys stepped into those roles. And that's happened many, many, many times over the years. It's part of part and parcel of the college game, you know. Will this group, will guys like Aaron Henry and Rocket Watts uh, and Joey Hauser be the stars that they potentially can be? 
I think the odds are good that that happens, but it, we need to see it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that'll do it for Michigan State. Uh, until next time, the Final Four is not on the schedule. For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. With 24-7 support and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.